I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I also bring you greetings from the church in South Sudan. Uh, frequently, when it was known that I, was be, I would be returning to uh, the U.S., people often said, greet the church there. So I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in South Sudan. It is a privilege to be able to open God's Word together this morning, and I would invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. Uh, South Sudan, we've been working through this during our team worship time. Um, and just by way of introduction to the text, we are in chapter 6, which I recognize is in the middle of the book, and so let me orient you just a little bit. Nehemiah was about 450 years before Christ, and you know that the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed. God put it in the heart of Nehemiah to uh, rally God's people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. As uh, Pastor Jerry already mentioned, uh, Jerusalem being representative or a picture of Christ's church. And so today... We're reaching the, about the middle point of the book, where up to this point it has been focused on the physical rebuilding. Subsequent to this is more the reformation and the rebuilding of the people. But today we are just on the cusp of the walls being completely finished. There's been enemies attacking, and this is the last chance that the enemies have to, to win over the people of God before the wall is completely finished. So we'll see that more, more in uh, our text today. But let's read now uh, and listen from God's word. And let's pray before we do. Lord, we are listening. We pray that you would open our ears, um, focus our minds. Lord, we have many distractions. Uh, we need your spirit to help us to be attentive to what you would speak today. Lord, let us hear that still, small voice. Uh, Show us wonderful things from your word today, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 6, this is the word of our Lord. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? Will I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, 
and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Ascends the reading of God's word. Distractions, deadly distractions. Uh, I, I think it doesn't take much convincing for you to think about how deadly distractions can be. Uh, just in the year 2020, there were over around 100, 1.6 million rather, 1.6 million car accidents that were attributed to distractions, more than 3,000 of which were fatal. You've probably had this experience either yourself, you don't have to admit it, but you've certainly been next to a driver who was clearly distracted by his cell phone, and you could clearly see the deadliness that that distraction was bringing. I had this experience that coincided with this sermon, actually, in South Sudan. I was carrying some jerry cans, and someone was talking to me. Uh, jerry cans carry our water. Uh, someone was talking to me, and so I was not looking where I stepped. Next thing I knew, I was stepping on something round and rolly, and there was something on my other foot. It was a snake. That could have been deadly. Obviously, I'm here, so you know it kind of erodes the point a little bit, but it could have been bad had that been a, a bad snake. I was not focused on what I should have been focused on. These are distractions that can harm us in life and you know, get us down roads we don't want to be down and, and accidents we don't want to be down. But today, for all of us sitting here, the stakes are significantly and even infinitely higher. There are distractions in this life that could lead us to death even, to eternal death. The distractions could cause us to make shipwreck of our faith. And of course, then the question is, if we're not to be distracted, what are we to be focused on? We'll look at that as well. Um, what should our priorities be in life? We'll consider that. But first, we want to consider three deadly distractions. Three deadly distractions that represent common tactics of the enemy in our Christian faith. Now, bear in mind... In chapter 6 here, the wall is almost done, a point at which it could be tempting to let down the guard a little bit, to become a little bit more relaxed. You know, we're almost there to hit cruise control. A spiritual high, you could say. They've accomplished a great work. They're almost done. This is the time when the enemy loves to come in and attack right on the heels of a spiritual high or great accomplishment in your life or in the church, this is the time that we need to be uh, aware of deadly distractions. So just deadly distraction number one, and that is 
The distraction of false friendship. The distraction of false friendship. This shows up in verses 2 through 4. There's these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. Uh, these guys have been around for a while. They've leveled a number of attacks, even physical attacks, against the work. They have not been successful, so they're missing their, their opportunity is almost closed. And so they pick a different tact. They send this word, uh, giving the impression that they want to they make a treaty. They want to you know, have peace. Um, and so they invite Nehemiah to come out, to, to lure him out into a vulnerable place in the plains of Ono, be close to Samaria, far away from safety. Nehemiah, you see, he understands their intent. He says in verse 3, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? Well, I leave it and come down to you. He understood. These guys, they're up to no good. I need to be careful. They might be putting on a nice face, but they are distracting me from the work that God is calling me to do. The enemy is persistent, though. How many times? Four times they send to me in this same manner. Come on out. Think of the temptation in the desert of Jesus. It wasn't just with one temptation that the, the, the devil was content. He attacked Jesus multiple times. Nehemiah just responded in the same way. Over and over. He said, no, I can't come down. Because why? Because he understands what his priorities are. He doesn't get worn down. You and I can so easily be worn down. We hear the same message over and over and over. You know, it's okay. It's okay to go to this area. It's okay to wait. It's okay to think this way. It's okay to do this or that. And what it is, is it's the devil drawing you out, trying to get you into a vulnerable place where he can move in for the kill. Nehemiah knows his priorities. He knows what his calling is. He knows why he is on this earth, and so he resists. The devil is crafty. The devil has been studying people a lot longer than any of you have been doing. And so he knows that the best way to get you to be vulnerable is to just get you kind of friendly. You know, not... not over attack always, but just get you friendly with the idea of being in a bad place, in a place where you would be tempted to fall. Sometimes he'll even present the sin as beneficial. It's disguised as a good move, a good thing to do. It'll help you out. It'll encourage you. Just bow down. That's all you've got to do. Just bow down just this once and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. The enemies that you and I are facing in the world, the flesh and the devil, want nothing more than to lure you out into the plains of Ono where we will be weak and vulnerable. Note this. The Lord just does these kind little things in language. It's the place called Ono. Kids, you can remember this. When you are tempted to go to a place called, oh no, what should be your response? Oh no. All right? So when you're tempted, oh no, we're not, we're not going there. 
And I don't know for the rest of you what that place is. Whether it's a location uh, in your city, whether it's a place in your mind, a mindset, a way of thinking, whether it's, uh, it's a website, whether it's videos, whether it's uh, people that you're hanging out with that really are wearing you down and that represent a place where you are weak and you are vulnerable, far away from the protection of the walls of the church. Again, don't expect temptation to disappear the first time. If you've lived for any amount of time, you know that your cardinal sins, they keep coming against you like waves against the rock. Over and over and over. Your sins wearing you down, wearing you down, wearing you down. And so beware of false friendship. Those circumstances, those people, those things, those things in life that would draw you away from the church, that would draw you into a place of vulnerability, promising you good things, but only wanting to, to kiss so then you can be killed. That's deadly distraction number one. Number two, deadly distractions of false accusation. The deadly distraction of false accusations. This is in verses 5 through 7. All right, so it doesn't work out to do this covert operation. And so, well, let's go public with this. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. This is a, a public post. This is uh, something for everyone to be viewing, for everyone to be reading. This is a public smear campaign. This is a conspiracy theory that's being um, uh, pushed here. It says, it is reported among the nations. All right, other people are saying this. We've heard it. And Geshem says it also. We've got sources that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And this is why you're rebuilding the walls. And it, and it continues. False accusations. If we can't get them by tempting him, let's just, let's just attack him in the media. Let's just attack him in front of his friends. Let's go after him. What was the purpose? Well, it's meant to discourage the Jewish people. It's meant to, to sow discord, distrust. What is the content of their accusations here? Well, it's mostly lies, but the enemy knows that if it's a complete and obvious lie, no one's going to fall for it. And so what do you do? You sprinkle in a little bit of truth just to substantiate the lies, to, to give some traction to this thing. Yeah, Nehemiah was their leader. I don't know. What's he thinking? Maybe he does want to be king. I don't know. What have you heard? Are the people wanting to rebel? Well, they're pretty committed to this Christianity thing. They're pretty committed to building this city and this church, maybe they are wanting to rebel against the king. Who knows? What was Nehemiah's reaction? It's not what you think. He doesn't become distracted by the desire to preserve his own name, to preserve his own reputation. He doesn't waste time defending against this character assassination. 
Nehemiah knows that his reputation is safe with God. In Christ, you Christian are safe before God. God knows his children. He is watching your life. He knows what is true and false. And likewise, Nehemiah is not rocked with this, and so he doesn't get all worked up. You know how painful false accusations can be, and boy, it just, it's hard to bite your tongue. I mean, even, even just in the smallest ways, right? I mean, someone says something that you're in conversation, it's just a little bit off, doesn't exactly represent you the way that you would like to be represented. I don't know, if, I mean, if you're like me, it is hard to bite your tongue in those moments. Nehemiah, he's not worried about these things. And all of this, of course, point, pointing to Christ, who is falsely accused, who is maligned. Mark chapter 14, there Jesus also was silent. It's completely contrary to what you and I want to do. We, we bristle, we want to stand up and defend ourselves. Because that'll get us off task. That'll get us off focus. That'll keep us from focusing on the things that we ought to be focused on in our lives and the callings that God has given to us. That's the content of the attack. But what was the intent? What was the intent of the attack? It was to bring fear. Verse 9. They wanted... For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. They wanted to just frighten. They just wanted to get to the hearts of the people. They wanted to deter them, to cause the work to just drop and to be finished. They wanted the progress of the church to cease. They were not happy with what was going on with the glory that was being given to God and the good that was being brought to the church. There are all sorts of accusations, false accusations being made about the bride of Christ these days. It's happening around the world. I can share with you the ludicrous sorts of accusations that are made about the uh, the churches in South Sudan by those who are outside the church, um, enemies of God, at least at this point. Um, just absolutely ludicrous. But you know very well that something does not need to be true in order for it to be harmful and damaging. Just got to believe it. If you believe these false sorts of lies, you will be brought down. You will be distracted from the calling on your life. You might think, really, is the bride of Christ beautiful? Really, is she really going to grow? Is Christ really going to build his church like he said? It's so easy in our minds to just think contrary. Think, boy, things are on a downhill slope. Brothers and sisters, that is false. Christ is building his church. About your own life, you might think, how in light of my cardinal sins and the ways in which I struggle with sanctification, how will I ever reach glory? The promise, nevertheless, is true. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Don't listen to the lies. Yes, there will be struggles. 
Yes, it will be hard. You will find yourself in situations that you do feel filled with fear. Look at verse 9. The intention there was to frighten us, it says. The ESV isn't the most helpful here. Um, The sense is that Nehemiah really did have fear. He really was trembling. Uh, And so so this attack is having a bit of its intended effect. Uh, And so, yes, there will be times when you are tempted and when you are struggling with fear because of false accusations. Nevertheless, Nehemiah, I wish we could look at all the places where Nehemiah always turns to God in prayer. Struggling in life, turns to God in prayer. Sometimes big, sometimes small. We have a short prayer here today. He says, Lord, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. A simple little prayer, a great prayer for you to tuck into your back pocket this week. Uh, What does it mean? But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Well, this is just a idiom. It doesn't mean make my hands strong. It means, Lord, strengthen my person. Lord, make me faithful. Make me resilient. Give me the strength to do that to which you are calling me to do. Just jump back a little. Note, he did respond to his enemy in this case. He did respond. In verse 8, he gave Some quick, concise words. He says, Then I sent to him, saying, in response to these false accusations, No such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. There is a time and a place to reply to the enemy. But I think he's following the wisdom here of Proverbs 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It'll take wisdom. You'll have to pray and seek the Lord's wisdom to know, should I say something or should I not? Um, But always keep that wisdom in mind of fewer words probably are better. So he ends uh, these verses here with verse 9 with this prayer to God. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. The attack, the deadly distraction of False accusation is not successful. So, the enemy goes for the third distraction. And in this distraction, he appeals to the distraction of self-preservation. A desire to protect oneself. How does it go? Well, it's subtle. It's covert. It's not an open letter. It's not a public campaign. It's a different tactic. Verse 10. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God. Within the temple, let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. So they say, wow, this guy's guy's pretty resilient. He stood up to the attacks. Let's see if we can't prey on that natural instinct to preserve oneself. Just the that natural desire that all of us have to protect our own flesh. We recoil from things that could do us harm. A natural instinct. Let's see if we can appeal to that desire for safety. And so, um, this man is confined to his home, Shemaiah. We don't know exactly why, uh, whether it was a physical disability, whether it was ceremonial uncleanness, or something of this effect. We don't know why 
He is confined to his home. But Nehemiah, he trusts this guy uh, enough so that he goes to his home. Um, He goes there and Shemaiah makes this appeal. He says, let us meet together in the house of God. Basically what this means is let's go to a place that is safe. Let's get you out of harm's way. You know, this work of church kingdom building, it's dangerous stuff. Let's go to the home plate. Let's go to where there's safety. Because no one's going to attack in the temple. It's just, you don't do that in that context. That's just, that's a bridge too far. And so, let's go to the house of God because they're coming to kill you tonight. Now, at this point, it doesn't seem that Nehemiah understood um, up to verse 11. Um, because in verse 12, there's the editorial note on this narrative that, and I understood and I saw that God had sent him. So up to this point, he doesn't, he's not quite sure what's going on, but then he hears this appeal and his knee-jerk reaction is no. That would constitute sin. Whether it's on the grounds that Nehemiah was not a Levite or for him to leave the work would be a sin. Either way, Nehemiah says, no, I'm not going there. For me, that would be a sin. He says in verse 11, Should such a man as I run away? What man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. This is, this is remarkable. For him, it would have been sin to run away from the calling that God had given to him. Similar to the second accusation, What is the purpose of this accusation? What is the intent? Verse 13. For this purpose, he, that is this false prophet, was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. The devil again, appealing to that fear. Because if you can get someone to live in fear, they're going to start acting in a way that is sinful, making poor decisions. This is an interesting tactic, and a very typical one if you think about it. One that you and I face regularly, and if you reflect back on your life, I'm sure in moments of weakness you can see how the devil has done this as well. He has appealed to you, he's tempted you, you've given in to sin, he's lured you in, and then the very thing that was used to tempt you then becomes the thing that he uses to taunt you. He entices you to sin, and then he accuses you for the very thing that he tempted you to do. And then it becomes this this haunting voice that follows you around. The purpose was to get them to sin, so then they could just taunt the people of God. The devil holding out this promise of safety, of security, Maybe in your life it's safety, security. I don't know. Perhaps it's pleasure, comfort, things that they seem important. They seem like, I mean, if you're just a a good, wise human being, you would live in this way because, oh, we don't want to be dangerous. We don't want to risk our lives. I don't know what is tempting you today, what is 
distracting you in the name of self-preservation or self-promotion. But beware, that very sin is what's going to turn into the thing that the devil uses to accuse you. This is what happened to Peter in the New Testament. He denies Christ three times out of a desire to protect his own hide. And as soon as he hears the rooster crow, he weeps bitterly. I'm sure you know this experience. To weep bitterly over the sins that you once thought would, they would give you fulfillment, satisfaction, a sense of purpose. Those are the things that give you now a sense of condemnation. How does Nehemiah respond? He responds in verse 14, committing his enemies into God's hands. Oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Lord, remember them according to their deeds. He doesn't get in a, a verbal firefight. He just commits them in prayer to the Lord. So these are distractions that the enemy uses to attack his church. It's used in Nehemiah's day. It's used, they're used in our day. So what are we to do? If we're not to be distracted, being pulled off course, being pulled down, what's the alternative? It's to focus on divine priorities. It's to focus on divine priorities. You need to know what the Lord is calling you to do, and so thus you will know what to be focused on in this life. You need to know what is the yes, so that you will know what you need to say no to. Go back to verse 2 and 3. This is where there was the temptation to come out to the plains of Ono. This is the message he sends. And I sent them messengers saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Nehemiah was doing great work. He understood his calling in life. That is the reason that he was not distracted because he was so convinced of the work that God had called him to do and the greatness therein that he didn't have time for anything else. What about your life? What about your life? Are you so convinced of the work that you are doing, that you could call it a great work. You should be. Ah, but you say, really? I mean, the walls of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem compared to look at my life. I mean, how can we call my life great and the work that God's calling me to do great? When I mean, this is Nehemiah. This is the, these are the walls of Jerusalem. But just stop and think for a minute. Just think how ordinary this project was. I mean, it was a typical old construction site full of just normal people. There was families working together. There was people from other backgrounds that came to work. It's a matter of carrying bricks and mortar and stones. It's extremely ordinary work, brothers and sisters. Don't, don't over glorify or spiritualize or whatever this work of wall rebuilding it was ordinary work 
So how, how can we call this great work? How can you can think about your life the work, and the work that God is calling you to do? How can you consider that great work? I think we must say this. The work was a great work in Nehemiah's day because of the reason for which it was built and the manner in which the people worked. Namely, they were working for God's glory, for the good of the church. And when God's people are working for His glory, according to His revealed will, according to the Word of God, in light of Scripture and all that it teaches us to do, when they are doing that, when you are working out of a heart of faith and for the good of the church, that is the greatest work that any of us can be involved with. Whether you are a child, a student, a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, a doctor, a nurse, an engineer, a manager, whatever you are, it can potentially be great work if it is done for God's glory, for the good of the church, according to God's word, and done from a heart of faith. God is calling all of us to do great work today. And that's going to be subservient to keep us on task. Just to draw things to a close, why does all this matter? Why fight the distractions? Why be so concerned about what we're doing in this life and why even think about what's great work? You know, can't we just settle for Easy, mediocre. After all, I mean, like the walls of Jerusalem, where are they today? I mean, they don't even stand up to lots of other significant monuments. I mean, the wall of China, you know, there's lots, there's a lot of things that are a lot more impressive. Walls of Jerusalem, where are they today? It was just a pile of rocks in the Middle East, essentially, right? So, you know, what was the point? What was the big fuss? Why exert all that energy? reason is this, because Jesus is building his church, and on the foundation of our finished Savior's work, we labor today. On that foundation of the work that Jesus did, which is a finished work, we don't add to our salvation, but we are called to work and to participate in the kingdom building that Christ is doing today. A new Jerusalem is being built. Today you have the opportunity to participate in great and eternal work because of Jesus. And only that which is built on that foundation is truly great work. All other work will be burned. You see, the walls of Jerusalem pictured an eternal reality that would become clearer in time. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God, our Heavenly Father, through his Son, is building a new city today, a heavenly Jerusalem, a city whose builder and maker is God 
A Jerusalem that is not built with stones and mortar, but with living stones, being built together, being knit together, growing up into the fullness of maturity to be a place where God will dwell with his people. If you are a believer today, this is the work that God is doing in you, and God is calling you to work through as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promise that you are building your church. Lord, thank you for this uh, historical account of Nehemiah where we get a, a practical picture. Lord, we, we love um, stories. And as kids, we love picture books. And you've given us a great picture of what you are doing in this world. You are building your church. You are gathering stones that have been, they've been torn down. They're stained with smoke. But Lord, you are building your church today and we rejoice in that work, Lord. Thank you for the living stones around this world that you are knitting together. Lord, we, we, we hardly even see a small portion of the church that you're building today, of the new heavenly Jerusalem Lord, we look forward uh, to the day when we'll get a better perspective, a bigger perspective to see the heavenly Jerusalem. Until that end, Lord, we pray that you will make us faithful laborers in your kingdom. And thank you for the foundation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on uh, whom all things that are eternal are built. We pray these things for our Lord's sake and in his name. Amen.